Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we have on the line, Dov Weiss. And Dov Weiss, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. I grew up in New York. Uh, my father is a Orthodox rabbi. My grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi. I was also an Orthodox rabbi earlier in life, and then I moved to academia. I did my PhD at the University of Chicago Divinity School, where I studied Jewish biblical interpretation and Jewish theology with uh, Professor Michael Fishbane, a great scholar. Uh, and uh, in 2011, I joined the religion department at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I just completed my first book called Pious Irreverence about God and Rabbinic Judaism, published by Penn Press. Excellent. And uh, I, I've listened to you. You have a lecture out on SoundCloud about Pious Irreverence, and I must have listened to it maybe five times. Uh, just a great lecture. And, Thank you. Uh, yeah. So I suggest every uh, listener go out and listen to that lecture, get a feel for what his book is, and then go buy his book. We'll let you plug the book a little bit later. But I'd like okay. to re really thank you for coming back on. We did this for the audience, uh, for the audience might not know, but we did this uh, audio recording already. But there are some technical glitches on my end. I just felt really bad. I'm like, oh, no, I'm about, you know, in the, in the throes of depression, right? So you, you graced us, you came back on, and we're redoing this interview. Sure, my great pleasure. You are saving me, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. So I found I, you. I, I always love talking about God. So oh, I love it too. Any time of day, any time of day. <laughs> Excellent. So, so the reason I found your name, uh, I was doing studies on uh, Ephraim Erbach, uh, Jewish scholarship, and uh, just perceptions of Yahweh in Judaism, just the development. And your name came up. Uh, you were criticizing some of the things that uh, Ephraim Erbach had written in his book, The Sages. And uh, so um, I found your literature. I found uh, your academia.edu site. A lot of great articles on there as well. You pointed me to your most recent one, which talks about Jewish scholarship, the development of Jewish scholarship and where we are at today also a great article so in that tradition um can you just describe to us yahweh as found in the hebrew bible and i know i know that i understand that there's going to be a diversity of viewpoints for these authors but just like a general overview yeah i would say the key the, the key distinction what's unique about the god adonai uh, which is jews tend to describe uh, Yahweh as Adonai, so I'll use the term Adonai, that Adonai has a will that's outside of nature, as opposed to the gods of the ancient Near East that were associated with various natural forces, and there were times where the gods never even transcended the natural forces. In ancient Near East, the gods typically did not have all the power. There were battles between gods. Typically, there was a meta-divine power that was stronger than the gods. What you have in the Hebrew Bible is a god who is outside of nature uh, and has a will that is transcendent. And God in the Hebrew Bible has immense power and immense knowledge. Um, so in that sense, he's not bound by the typical biological constraints that human beings 
are. However, Adonai in the Hebrew Bible is a God who is emotionally vulnerable. So there's all this power and knowledge, but there's a deep vulnerability. And God gets easily jealous when the Israelites don't worship Adonai as they should. And he gets angry and he gets mad. And there are times when he wants to destroy the Israelite people and Moses has to jump up. And, and defend the, the, the people. So God really is a character. God is personality. God is unpredictable. God is history. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very different than the conceptions of God that we have beginning in the medieval period in the Jewish community. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, Mount Sinai, of course, and God says, I'm just going to destroy all these people, and I don't care. I'll just make a new Israel through you, Moses and Moses really has to argue him talk him down and give a variety of uh, evidences a, a variety of persuasion techniques in order to get God to to subside his anger and go right on to back Israel. down yeah to calm Mo- Moses's function was to calm God down very often from from his his fits of, of anger where he's just had enough with the people and it's clear in the Bible that human beings, prophets have an effect on God. I mean, typically we think of prophets as individuals who carry the divine word to the people. But what what you see in Jeremiah, what you see in Habakkuk is a conception of a prophet where a prophet does carry God's word to the people, but the prophet oftentimes as well defends the people and sometimes challenges God. And there are moments throughout the Hebrew Bible where God does concede some of these critiques, which is quite um, you know, quite interesting and bold, um, and it's and, and that's something that, of course, troubled uh, many, many uh, uh, Jews and, and Christians throughout the the ages. You know, this conception of a, of a God that's in certain ways human-like, both with regard to certain emotions as well as well as even body. I mean, there is no statement in the Hebrew Bible or in rabbinic literature. And when I say rabbinic literature, I'm referring to the writing, Jewish writings um, after Jesus Christ from, let's say, the year 100 to the Islamic conquest in the 7th century. There is no sense that God is incorporeal. Um, that is something that begins really with Sa'aja Gaon, one of the great rabbis in the 9th century. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really... Um, you know, when you look at the Bible and rabbinic literature, God very much is a character, a personality, um, a, someone who has immense power and immense knowledge, but someone who interacts, is involved in history, can change, and is not static. So, uh, so God, as uh, conceived by the writers of the Bible, was a person, a character, but these views started to shift over time. Can you talk about the development of the views the, in Judaism concerning Yahweh over time? Sure. I mean, the, 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 the major revolution was the medieval period, where you had two new movements in Judaism. You had Jewish philosophy, and Jewish. the greatest of the Jewish philosophers, of course, is Moses Maimonides, who lives in the 12th century. He was born in southern Spain. Cordova, but spent most of his life in Egypt. He's writing in Arabic, Jewish letters, Hebrew letters, but in Arabic. And he's very much influenced by 
the writings of Aristotle filtered through Arabic translations and Arabic commentaries on Aristotle. And the revolution is that Maimonides begins to think about God and conceive of God as not a character, but more a concept, the, the, the notion of a prime mover, you know, um, the first cause, the unmoved mover. So God is no longer a he, a character. God is really a metaphysical concept. And Maimonides actually says that if you believe, if you believe in the literal reading of the Hebrew Bible, that God gets angry or God has human-like limbs or human-like emotions, for Maimonides, that is the heart of idolatry. To make the claim that God is person, that God... So the, the Torah really becomes a dangerous document for Maimonides because Maimonides believes that you have to read the Bible philosophically. And if you don't read it philosophically, you end up in heresy. And of course, Maimonides has to then deal with, well, if in fact the Torah is a dangerous document, then why did God write it in a way which appears so unphilosophical? And, you know, he has his, his, uh, his explanations. Uh, the people weren't ready yet for philosophy or, um, but, but, so then that's on one is you, you have a Maimonidean conception of God that's really an Aristotelian, you know, an unchanged, immovable, transcendent God that has no real relationship with the world or humanity. Mm-hmm. Then you have another development, uh, medieval Jewish mysticism, which begins in the 12th century in southern France, but really reaches its heyday in 13th century northern Spain with the writing of the Zohar, which is the greatest uh, Jewish, medieval Jewish mystical text of the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah conceives of God as a multiplicity of powers, a multiplicity of aeons. Some scholars have called it uh, neo-Gnosticism or Jewish Gnosticism because God also is no longer a personality or a character. God is, a, God is a machine or a system of these powers that operate almost according to law-like um, necessity. So in both medieval Jewish philosophy and medieval Jewish m- mysticism, you have, the, you have the, the, the fragmentation of the divine personality or the depersonalization of God. Both the Jewish philosophers and Jewish mystics believed that you had to read the Torah not literally, but read it either allegorically, according to the Jewish philosophers, or, symbi- or symbolically, according to the Jewish mystics. And they both claimed, the mystics and the philosophers claimed, that they carried a secret tradition of how to read the Torah. And in effect, by claiming that they have the secret way of reading the Torah, they actually, I think, undermined, in a very powerful sense, the message of the message of the Torah, uh, because they're reading it through their own cultural historical filter, whether it be you know Jewish neo neoplatonic Aristotelianism in the Maimonides case, or in um, in Kabbalah through a mix of Neoplatonism and 
neo-Gnosticism. I know I'm throwing around these big terms, yeah. but the bottom line is, is that you have a revolution in medieval Judaism, whereas God loses his character and his personality. He either becomes a complex system or a, a concept, a transcendent concept that one can never really fully grasp. Yeah, I think that's pretty funny. There, there are claims that uh, the Bible was written for the, this primitive understanding, but if you use primitive understanding to understand the Bible, you're in some sort of heresy. And it's, it, it really becomes very subjective at that point. It's like, okay, so what standards do we use? Do we use your standards? Is your standards, are they biblical? Are they in the Bible? Are they lined out there? And nothing. And it, it just becomes a subjective. That's why you probably have this uh, Kabbalistic school at the same time as, uh, when, I don't know if I could say his name right. I, oh, Maimonides. Maimonides. My, my, my my, right. All right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I looked at well, the we, name. Well, you know what? We can let's just call him Rabbi Moses. Rabbi Moses. Rabbi Moses. Rabbi Moses. <laughs> my son's name is Moses. I like Rabbi Moses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you good. have both. But, but, but both both the philosophers and the mystics really believe that, that no, the Torah must be more comprehensive and more systematic. You know, it, 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 it must be more um, engaged with the, 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 the currents of the day, the ideologies of the day. So there's an attempt to harmonize, you know, the, the, the culture and the religious sensibilities of, of the people around them. And to do so... They have to find a way to reconcile, you know, their tradition, their, their culture, and their text, and they come up with completely imposing new readings onto the text that are not there. So what? But, that, but, oh. but, but that's what often religious traditions do, you know, is to often read back their their own values and commitments back onto to the text. It's just so blatant. It's just so obvious when you look at, you know, in this case, when you when you compare the medieval. Uh, reinterpretations to a simple, straightforward reading of the text. Yeah, one thing you said that was interesting about the Kabbalistic school, I believe in your lecture, if not, it was the previous time we spoke, but uh, the Kabbalistic school really had God dependent on the created world, and the created world gives him inputs, and there's this uh, mutual, mutual uh, symbiotic relationship yeah. as opposed to the Neoplatonist tradition where God is totally independent of mankind. Exactly. I think that's a real great uh, point, you know, which really differentiates the, the medieval Jewish philosophers and the medieval Jewish mystics, the Kabbalists, because the philosophers claim God doesn't change. God can never change. God is transcendent. Um, that would somehow undermine the, 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 the Greek philosophical view of God as perfection, you know, unchanging and therefore perfect. Um, whereas the Kabbalists believe that uh, uh, God is affected by human actions, that if the Jewish people are committed to the Jewish traditions and Jewish laws, that that harmonizes the divine structure. It unites the masculine and feminine aspects of God. That's something also that's very new in Jewish medieval Jewish mysticism, the idea that God has, has been gendered parts. Uh, and, and that the goal is for these gendered parts, masculine and feminine, to, to unite as one. But that's dependent upon the human being. God needs humanity for God's wholeness. Mm -hmm. And that is something that's quite, quite radical. You have certain of the, you know, you, you have some statements pointing in this direction in, in the literature of the Talmud, in the literature of, of the Midrash of the rabbis. Um, but there, you, you do get the sense is that we're not 
operating with kind of like a, a divinity that operates according to predictable, machine-like, law-like necessity, uh, but that God maintains his personality and character in the Talmudic literature. So yeah, we have an effect on God like one person can have an effect on another person, right? I convinced you to do something. Um, or in the Bible, Moses convinces God to do something. In Kabbalah, it's a lot more um, predictable and it's more systematic and machine-like. So like if, if the Jewish people are doing good deeds and following God's laws, then you know, automatically, you know, you know, at that moment, God is transformed. So there may be some um, commonalities between Bible and rabbinic conceptions of God and Kabbalistic conceptions in that in all three, the human being can have an effect on God. But the difference is whether it operates mechanistically yeah. or via or via an interpersonal interpersonal relationship as if one character is talking to another character whereas Maimonides and the whole philosophical tradition Jewish philosophical tradition you know they they would think that's heresy that somehow the human being could have any effect you know on God all right so how do you take earlier data points such as uh, Josephus and uh, Philo of Alexandria in, in what in what in what well well uh, in as, terms of their conceptions of well Philo Philo is an interesting case uh, because Philo was a Jewish philosopher before Maimonides, about a thousand years, more than a thousand years before Maimonides. Philo of Alexandria is a Jew living in Alexandria. Look at that. His name is Philo of Alexandria, and he happens to live in Alexandria. Um, and he is part of a school that's known as Middle Platonism, right? This is before Plotinus, who founded Neoplatonism. This is still mm. Middle Platonism. And Philo's project was to synthesize the philosophy of Plato and the Greek conception of, of, of God, the Greek philosophical conception of God, with the writings of the, the Torah. So, really, you could say, hey, Dove, why are you pointing to Maimonides in the medieval Jewish philosophy? Why don't you go back all the way to Philo? And we could. We, we could talk about how Philo conceives of God as an unchanging, perfect, mm -hmm. transcendent God. But the thing is that Philo was never accepted by Jews, by the rabbis, the rabbis of the Talmud. As a matter of fact, Philo was preserved by early Christian community, by Origen, by Clement, yeah. and and the first traditional Jew to quote Philo, believe it or not, the 16th century Italian Jewish Renaissance figure named Azaria de, de Rossi. Philo was rejected by the rabbis because the rabbis said no to Philo. The rabbis said no, God is a character, God has personality, God can be uh, uh, convinced otherwise, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, also Philo's writing in Greek. So there's a certain natural affinity to Christian, uh, to, to Greek speaking Christians. And of course, Philo develops this idea of logos that becomes so important, you know, obviously in, 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 in the gospel of John and, and in subsequent Christian, uh, uh, you know, scholarship. Um, with regard to Josephus, Josephus was also a Jew, living in the first century CE, but he doesn't really develop, uh, you know, a strong uh, conceptions of, of God. He discusses, of course, the differences between the Sadducees and the, 
the Pharisees and the Essenes over questions of of free will and predetermination. Apparently, there was there was diversity within Second Temple Judaism over some key questions of whether there is an oral law, not just a written law, free will, predetermination, uh, pre- predestination, and things of the sort. But he doesn't develop any any consistent conception of God. Philo is really the the first Jewish philosopher, but but in a sense, you can call him a Christian philosopher. Yeah, a Christian philosopher. Before, in the time of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, Eusebius actually claims him as a secret Christian. So, <laughs> Well, there you go. I'm not surprised. I didn't know that, <laughs> but right. I'm not surprised at all. So in, uh, I believe in your lecture you talk about uh, Jewish uh, interaction with early proto-Orthodox and proto-Gnostics, the, the Marcians of the world. And can you talk yeah. about how Christianity influenced er- early Judaism in that respect? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the the Hebrew Bible, um, God is often challenged, as I mentioned, by figures in the Torah and in the prophets, of course, in Psalms and Job, and God seems to welcome and celebrate the the dialogue, right, the arguments back yeah. and forth, and uh, Marcion argued that. Jesus in the New Testament is the true God, is the God of love, and is the true God, and and the God of the Old Testament, Adonai, is an evil God. So Marcin was really, in some sense, a, a dualist. You know, there's a good God, the evil God, and he rejected the the canonicity of the Old Testament. Right? He didn't reject that it came from God; it just came from the wrong God. And the goal of Jesus and the New Testament was to correct all of the of the Old uh, Testament. And to prove his point, Marcion goes through the Hebrew Bible and shows how the Old Testament God is an immoral God. And but this is not just Marcion. This is other Gnostics as, as well making the same arguments. You have uh, p- pagans such as Celsus and, and Porphyry, who are also highlighting some of the moral problematic actions that were done by the Old Testament God. Um, they also challenge, many of them, the, the, um, the true divinity of the Old Testament uh, because God doesn't seem to be omniscient. Yeah. Uh, this is more the pagan critiques. And so what you have is, is the, the emerging Orthodox the emerging proto-Orthodox Christians like Origen and, and Tertullian and, and you know, Augustine and all the church fathers are trying to defend um, the, the unity of the two testaments and the divinity, the true divinity of the Old Testament by defending the morality of God. And in order to do so, they adopted certain strategies of reinterpretation, whether it be, you know, allegory or, and I think the rabbis were affected by this internal Christian debate over the morality of God, because you have something very, very new in second century Judaism. There was a great rabbi by the name of Akiva, and he said that it is prohibited to ever challenge or criticize God. And the argument of Arthur Marmerstein that I cited in my book is that the rabbis were affected by this inner Christian debate and the rabbis sided with the emerging orthodoxy that God's morality had to be defended always 
in the Hebrew Bible. And to strengthen that claim, Rabbi Akiva and other rabbis said that it is prohibited for a Jew to ever criticize God because that would imply, if you're allowed to criticize God, that would imply that there is a possibility that God made a mistake that God did something that was immoral. So there's this new concept in early rabbinic Judaism that it is that it is prohibited to challenge God. And I argue that this is very much a, this claim is very much affected by the the battles being waged within Christianity. As we know, there were, were many rabbis who had um, conversations and communications with with, uh, with with early Christian thinkers. So I think this is a pretty good time to segue into a little bit about of your little bit about your book pious irreverence and uh, just kind of tell us the basic themes and uh, propositions that you're making in that sure book. I mean when I, when I was a kid um, I went to a very orthodox uh, elementary school and whenever I asked questions about you know wh why did God do this or you know how could have how could God have you know asked Abraham to sacrifice his son or how can God have have not allowed Moses to enter into the promised land you know look he, he did so much for the Israelite people. I was always told that we were not allowed to ever question God's decisions. And, um, but I continued to struggle throughout my life with certain actions that God does in the Hebrew Bible. And when I came to graduate school, I recognized that, um, that many of the rabbis struggled with my same questions. And instead of simply defending God. Many of them did do that. As I just mentioned, Akiva and some of the early rabbis typically like to defend God's morality at all, all costs. But what I noticed in, um, in later rabbinic literature, the rabbinic literature of the 5th, 6th, and 7th century, was that many rabbis also struggled with certain actions that God committed in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible. And instead of defending it or ignoring it, they often challenged God by putting critiques of into the mouths of biblical characters. Um, in late rabbinic Judaism, there was a tendency to rewrite the biblical narrative, mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of like to see Moses and Abraham as rabbis of the of the fourth and fifth uh, century. So um, what they did was when they rewrote the, the the Bible, they often put critiques of God into the mouths of biblical character. So, for example, when they re-narrated the story of Moses being denied entry into the promised land instead of having the biblical account where Moses merely just, you know, meekly supplicates God to let him into the land, the rabbis really give it to God. Um, but they give it to God through the mouth of Moses. And my argument is that the rabbis were more open to the religious legitimacy of such an encounter with God. Although, of course, they didn't do so under their own, uh, their own shoulders. They... They put responsibility on the, soldier, the, the shoulders of the biblical characters, but that could, that could also be because in the rabbinic period, the rabbis no longer believed that one can, could communicate with God. So if you want to have a dialogue with God, it's got to be an, an imagined dialogue between biblical characters and God. So in a certain sense, in the later rabbinic tradition, the rabbis revive the legitimacy of challenging God that we have in the Hebrew Bible. Look, Job gives it to God. I mean, very strongly, and God is God is okay with it. Um, I mean, at the end of Job, 
God turns to Job and says, Job, you've spoken correctly. Your friends have not spoken correctly. Or, you know, we mentioned before Moses, and we see it in Habakkuk and Jeremiah, and many of the Psalms. Um, so the book really deals with this question of trying to unpack the rabbinic debate. There's, there are anti-protest rabbis and there are pro-protest rabbis. And I uncover the theological basis of both the anti-protest camp and the pro-protest camp. And then in the second half of the book, I look at actual the, the actual critiques that the rabbis level against God and some of the theological presuppositions and implications, being that there are many times in rabbinic literature, strikingly, where God concedes that he made a moral mistake. So I'll give you one amazing example, um, and that is there's a 7th century Jewish text where they're rewriting the Ten Commandments. So God says in the Commandments that he's going to punish children for the sins of the parents, parental sin. And he communicates that to Moses. And then Moses turns to God in this Midrash and says, God, how can you punish children for the sins of the parents? It's not fair. It's not right. What, you're going to punish uh, Abraham because he had an awful father? Moses knew where, really where to get where to get God. You know, give, him, give him an example of, of someone that God truly loves. So God unbelievably says in this text, you're right and I'm wrong. Ditani, you've taught me something. I will nullify my decree and accept your position from now on. Now quoting Deuteronomy 24, children shall not be put to death for the sins of the parents, nor parents put to death for the sins of the children. A remarkable moment where God concedes that a, a phrase in the Ten Commandments may have been a mistaken position. It's a marvelous text, which I think really points to a radical conception of God. God is not only human-like in terms of having human emotions, but God can also make moral mistakes. And I think the message of many of these rabbis is very clear, and that is, there's nothing wrong with having a relationship with God where you're able to be fully yourself, where you can lay everything on the table. Because what does it mean to have a relationship with, with God if you believe in a personal God? Not everybody does, but if you believe in a personal God, what does it mean that you can't challenge or can't question? You're like, what, a robot? You want to be a slave? You want to be in a real relationship. Lovers have to argue. Otherwise, they're not present fully in the relationship, you know? Um, I argue with my closest friends, my, my closest members, my family. That means I'm engaged. That means I care. That means I love, right? And I think the rabbis, when they describe the relationship between God and the, Jew and the Jewish people, they often don't use um, the relational metaphor of master-slave. Because if it's master-slave, you know, if we view ourselves as slaves to God, then you're right. You know, we have no right to open up our mouths. But if it's friends, if it's lovers— Right. That, that kind of opens up, you know, uh, a, a real a real relationship. And, and I found that it, it's helpful for for many in the Jewish community to understand that it's OK. It's OK to get mad. It's OK to get angry or put it this way. There is legitimacy within the Jewish tradition to make such a move. And of course, it becomes popular after the Holocaust and the writings of Elie Wiesel. Um, there is there are two sides of the tradition. You know, Judaism has a openness to it. Uh, there are a lot of different points of view, but I think part of the agenda, which, you know, I'm an academic, so maybe I couldn't, I couldn't come out 
so forward and say it, but I think it was pretty clear from the book, is that I think there is a, a rumor within the tradition to have an honest, real critique of God. And I've even seen some Christian thinkers and scholars who have, have called upon the Christian community to be more open about the, the, the possibility of maintaining this sort of a relationship with God. Even though, of course, Paul says, you know, who are you to, who are you to criticize God? You know, I'm a, a, God is the potter and we're just clay. Who are you, who, who are you to challenge God? Um, but that's in reference to a national election, not 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 okay. individual salvation. All right, you know this, you know this better than I do. <laughs> but but yeah, with, I, I'm going to stick with citing Torah passages, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So yeah, Job is an excellent example. I love the Book of Job. I love the Psalms yeah. as well. You see a lot of protest Psalms, people yeah. asking God why why is this the case? And they're suffering and they're dying. They say. Uh, turn your face to us. Why are you hiding your face? And and it's it's a criticism of God for inaction, and a lot of people they they just they just want to say, oh, that's impious. You're you're exactly. And the question, of course, is that if it's impious, then why what what how did it get into the how did it get into the Old Testament? You know, it seems to be not just any prayer. These are prayers of 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 great figures. I mean, you know, much of Psalms is attributed to King David. So. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so this is really a book. I think I think it, it, it's a book that was waiting to be uh, written, because I think one of the distinctive characteristics of Judaism is this this notion of of a legitimacy of challenging God. It's not a unanimous view within Judaism, but there is a strong tradition. Of course, the tradition ends in the medieval period. Because, as I noted, the Jewish philosophers and the medieval mystics don't have a conception of God as a character. So who are you arguing with? You're arguing with the, with the first cause and an unmoved mover, a transcendent God who has nothing to do with the world. You're going to argue against the system of, 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 of spheres, aeons in, the, in Kabbalah. That doesn't seem to make much, much sense. Um, that's why it's distinctive to the, the rabbinic period and also in the Hasidic period in the 18th, 19th century in modern Jewish pietism, uh, it does re, uh, it does reemerge. That's interesting. So yeah, I, I owe you a book review. I'm going to buy your book. I'll review Thank your book you. and uh, maybe we'll have you back on to discuss your book, but, uh, I just, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. I mean, I think this is a fruitful conversation, you know, between, you know, between Judy, there's so much uh, in common between Judaism and, and Christianity. I mean, we share, we share sacred scripture, and and Jews and Christians are often faced with similar, uh, similar, similar challenges in, in, in how to read the the Old Testament. Yeah, so, so. yeah. So yeah, it's it's like if I'm not worshiping Yahweh, that I'm doing something wrong. So I should hope <laughs> I should hope there's some similarities, right? There is. I'm sure so, there is. So before we get going, can you? I, I had you on primarily to talk about Jewish scholarship and uh, the, this uh, tradition of uh, views about Yahweh. Can you just tell us what's the current state of Jewish scholarship? How do they receive these ideas? What are their positions? What are the the the, the currents, basically? Sure. I mean, when you think about the history of of uh, the Jewish God, I mean, there are really f- kind of four or five different conceptions. You know, the, the, the biblical slash rabbinic, which we've talked about, the, the, uh, of, uh, personality, the Maimonidean, which is the, 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 uh, the, con- the Aristotelian philosophical concept, the Kabbalistic, and then there's the Hasidic idea of Adonai. The Hasidic idea in the, uh, developed in the 18th, 19th century is um, really pantheism, that Adonai is within everything in the world. Uh, that everything is Adonai, if we had the correct vision. So 
you know, the, the question is, is it within the Jewish community, community today is which conception of God is the true conception? There are really divergent views, um, even with regard to the question of what is monotheism, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, is the oneness of God just a number, that there's one God and not many gods? Well, Maimonides would say no, that, that monotheism isn't just a number, it's a quality. And that quality is that God cannot be divided, that God has no parts. And if God has no parts then God has no body, right? Um, so it's much more than just the number one. It's that God God can't, has no parts. In the Kabbalistic tradition, it's the other extreme. Monotheism means unity, the opposite, that God has parts. And oneness is the concept of bringing together all the various aspects um, of God. The Hasidic perspective in the 18th, 19th, centuries is is the radical claim that monotheism means monism that everything is god mm-hmm. that if we had the proper eyeglasses everything if this desk in front of me is pulsating with uh, divinity so what is idolatry so idolatry for the kabbalists would be well if you only worship this sphere of god or that sphere of god and not recognize the ultimate unity of all of the divine spheres. In Hasidic tradition, what is idolatry? Not worshiping other gods, but it's the belief that somehow the material world is distinct from God, that is idolatry. Because you're rejecting the divinity of all of materiality. So you, you know, and of course Maimonides will say, what is idolatry? Idolatry is if you believe that God can be divided. So if you believe that God has body, that so my point is that there is there, the constant conceptions of God are constantly in flux, and the question is going to be in contemporary Judaism is which one of these descriptions of God is the correct one. So you have, for example, Michael Wishagrad. It's a great scholar. He wrote a book, Body of Faith. Get it? It's a phenomenal book. He says I am going to side with the biblical and rabbinic conception of God. From medieval Judaism and on, hijacking of Judaism. It's all wrong. He's very anti-Maimonides. If you turn to uh, Mordechai Kaplan, who was the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, he's going to say Maimonides is right. He's going to say God cannot be a character or personality. That's absurd. He's going to talk about uh, God in, in philosophical terms. And he was a great 20th century thinker. If you look at the Kabbalah, uh, center today, they're going to claim the Kabbalistic God is the correct conception of God. And if you look at another great rabbi um, who started a rabbinical school in Boston called Arthur Green, he's going to argue that it's the Hasidic perspective uh, that has the correct view. So there are a lot of different contemporary rabbis running around kind of highlighting or emphasizing one conception over others. Of course, there are those that somehow want to synthesize. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are those Jews who, who want to see commonality within all of these different conceptions of God. Um, that's not my approach. I think that when you try to reconcile and harmonize different views within the tradition, you end up with none of them. <laughs> you end up with a uh, kind of uh, different colors, and you end up with a big mishmash. Uh, But there are those within the religious Jewish world that are trying to um, synthesize the Maimonidean approach, the Kabbalistic approach, the Hasidic approach, the biblical approach. Um, But I'm a scholar. I'm an academic. I like to see the historical evolution. I'm not an essentialist. I don't believe that there is one conception of God 
in Judaism. There are a lot of different conceptions, and I think Judaism is open, so open that it's open to seeing God in many different uh, many different realms. So where pers- would you place uh, Ephraim Erbeck, and what is your criticism of his approach? I mean, Ephraim Erbach, you know, has a Maimonidean conception of God, which is his prerogative, and, and God bless him. I mean, he's, he passed away. Uh, he was a great scholar at Hebrew University. He was an, he was an Orthodox Jew, uh, received uh, ordination at the, the Breslau Seminary. Um, but the pro- I have no problems with him being a Maimonidean. The problem is, is that he imposes Maimonidean categories back onto the Talmud and rabbinic literature. So Orbach was the one who systematically right, systematized all of rabbinic thought. Because as we all know, or maybe we don't all know, but we should all know, that if you read the Talmud, it's a mishmash. I mean, it's it's just kind of, there's no order. And Orbach made order, and not only did he make order, but he imposed abstract Maimonidean philosophical categories back onto rabbinic literature, right? So for example, if it speaks about God having, you know, Anger, of course, it doesn't really mean that. It's just a metaphor. So he's very much affected by a Maimonidean reading of rabbinic literature. And Orbach, unfortunately, is has been the trend for hundreds of years. It's only recently, with the writings of Michael Fishbane and Moshe Idel, um, what I would call the revisionism of the 1980s and 1990s, where these scholars said, no, you have to read the writings of the Talmud and Midrash on its own terms. Don't impose philosophical, abstract, Maimonidean readings of rabbinic literature, read them on their own terms. This is myth, not the sense of not true, but in the sense of God is very much a character and a personality. So I'm very much in the, you know, uh, this revisionist camp. Um, I still think you have to be careful because it's not Kabbalah, and sometimes there's a tendency to to, to shift from a, a Maimonidean reading, mm-hmm. right, of the Bible and rabbinic literature, and shift to a Kabbalistic reading. Um, I think there are more continuities between rabbinic literature and Kabbalah than there are between rabbinic literature and Jewish philosophy, but we have to still maintain the difference. But um, yeah, this is the problem with Orbach, and I think most people would agree um, that uh, that or- Orbach really imposes categories. Um, you know, he retrodrecks, I call yeah. it, back so. on to the But he was yeah. a great scholar. Don't get me wrong. Orbach is brilliant. People should read him. <laughs> but recognize that he's trying to really um, kind of break down the differences between medieval Jewish philosophy and rabbinic literature. Yeah, so, yeah, I just saw his book, The Sages, went down to $10 on uh, Kindle. So it's, buy that if anyone doesn't have that already. Yeah, I just want to give a warning. Well, not a warning, but if, 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 if it's a fantastic, you know, it's like encyclopedic work. So you're not going to stick. You know, if you have insomnia and you can't fall asleep at night, that may be the book to read um, because it is a difficult book to go through. One of my exams, my oral exams uh, for grad school was to – I got five hours in front of a computer and I had to write a critique of the book. I spent about six – I spent six months reading that book. So good luck so, to your readers. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what, one phrase that I like from uh, your paper that criticizes uh, Urbach's way of uh, retrojecting, as you say, you say he has those different containment strategies. I'm going to have to steal that phrase, phrasing from you and use yeah. it. So you, you, you have to contain the text. You have to say the text doesn't mean what it actually says, and you have to use these right. different methods to reinterpret it in light of what you want the text to mean. Yeah, I mean, I probably heard that from my from my mentor, my teacher, Michael Fishbane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, containment means you somehow have to 
push back against <laughs> the text. You have to somehow say the text doesn't mean what it what it says, you know, and there are a variety of ways to to do that, you know, to claim that, to claim metaphor, to claim allegory, to um, uh, to claim, and, 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 or to claim that, no, no, let's not take, you know, non-legal sections of the Talmud seriously. I mean, that was a, a typical uh, approach beginning in the ninth century in Judaism is to say, you know, the writings of the rabbis, yeah, they weren't that serious. These were sermons. These were rabbinic sermons in the synagogue. They were just trying to keep the crowd awake during the Saturday morning synagogue. Don't get so, don't take this stuff seriously as theology. You know, these are just stories. The legal sections, that's important. So there are different ways to contain the problem. And um, and Fishbane, I think, really does a marvelous job in, in the introduction of his book, uh, Biblical Myth and Rabbinic Myth-making. The intro was phenomenal, where he goes through the various methods of um, of containment. I also want to plug Moshe Halbertal. He's my favorite uh, uh, um, scholar of Jewish studies. Anything you see of Moshe Halbertal, I would just grab up. Um, start starting with his book, People of the Book, um, all the way down to most recently his book on medieval Jewish esotericism. It's it's just phenomenal, and that is a really good writer, and I think is a really engaging engaging thinker. Uh, I want to want to plug Moshe as well. Excellent. So uh, we're about running out of time. I'd like to thank you so much for coming on again to the podcast. Giving my us pleasure, time. Chris. If, if this if this didn't work out, <laughs> I'm happy to come back again because this is a. Uh, there's nothing more I love than talking about the history of, uh, of Jewish theology, and it's been a real pleasure. And I want to bless you and your readers for all all the good work that you're doing to try to uncover uncover the truths of of the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so I uh, suggest the audience uh, go and buy Pious Irreverence. There we go. And uh, thumbs up. Thanks, Chris. In the first podcast, I accidentally said irre- irrelevance accidentally. So, <laughs> so I don't know if you remember that, but I was like, ah. I was like, oh, I hope that part goes away. And then it Yeah, so, you know, my niece is a brilliant scholar at uh, Brandeis, and she made she made that same, same move. So... <laughs> So maybe Thank you so much, Chris. This has been a great, really great, great conversation, and I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you. All right. All, right. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye.